Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm honored to say that we have John Lucas on the show. His new book, Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, The Dire Warning, has just appeared from Basic Books. As some of you may know... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm honored to say that we have John Lucas on the show. His new book, Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, The Dire Warning, has just appeared from Basic Books. As some of you may know, the title of the book comes from a speech given by Winston Churchill as he became Prime Minister of the UK during World War II, in which he said he had nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat to offer. Um, John is a terrific historian and a wonderful stylist, and I should say a very interesting person to talk to. I found the interview with him to be enlightening and entertaining, and in addition, provocative in equal parts. I hope that you find the interview, all three of those things as well. Here it is. Good morning, John. Good morning, Marshall. Um, how are you today? Uh, I am fine. It's going to be a very hot day here. Yes, well, it's, I think it's going to be very hot here as well. It happens in the summer, especially here in Iowa. Um, actually, my in-laws just moved to Philadelphia, so I, uh, I envy you very much. It's a beautiful city. Um, let me tell our audience that today we are um, very pleased and honored, I should say, to have John Lucas on the show. Uh, he is an esteemed historian, one of the deans of American history, and the author of many, many books. I, I would... Um, read the titles of them, which I have a list of in front of me, but I'm afraid it would take up all of our time. So I I will just tell you that uh, he has a very nice Wikipedia entry on the Internet, and you can uh, read his bibliography, which is incredibly extensive there. Today we'll be talking about his book, Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, The Dire Warning, which has just come out from Basic Books. I've just finished the book, and to tip my hand, I, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely terrific and a model for the kind of popular history which I, I would like to write myself. Um, of course, John has been honing his craft for um, decades and decades, and, and uh, I hope to uh, achieve that mark um, um, perhaps in, I don't know, 30 years. <laughs> um, so, John, uh, what I would like you to do at the beginning of the interview is tell the audience a little bit about yourself, where you were born, um, where you grew up, how you became interested in history and that kind of thing. Could you do that for us? Well, I'm now in the 85th year of my life, which uh, allows one to have a somewhat broader retrospective when you are 30, 40, and 50. Mm-hmm. I was born in Hungary, and uh, partly uh, this has something to do with my ability to write. My mother was uh, very much of an Anglomaniac, sent me to school in England. Mm-hmm. I came back to Hungary, spent a war in Hungary, 
then the Russians came to Hungary, I was very certain that uh, sooner or later, rather sooner than later, uh, Hungary is going to be Sovietized, at least temporarily. I was able to leave the country um, illegally, but uh, it wasn't very difficult. Came to the United States. Uh, This is now, this is my 63rd year in the United States, Mm -hmm. and I decided to settle here to establish a family. I had to leave my family and uh, my country uh, to establish a house, a family, and a career. And uh, the career, of course, I became a college professor, but I was principally not at the expense of my teaching, interested in writing and writing not about my native country, but whatever interested me in history. I had some kind of history degree in Hungary, but um, it's not the academic stepladder that interested me, but the ability to write. And uh, so my first book, uh, of course written in English, was now published 55 years ago, and uh, I've written many books since there. I've written books that took me 13 years to write and be published. I had books that took me six months to write. (laughs) And, uh, And this is not necessarily reflected in their quantity or the quality by quantity I mean uh, page numbers mm-hmm. uh, the book uh, this last book you're talking about is a very small book it only took me about five or six months to mm-hmm. write not oh but the principal reason for this is not that the that it's a small book only about 150 160 pages but also because I knew the subject very well, and uh, in other words, behind this, I mean, this rested on kind of accumulated intellectual capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, the month of May 1940, this only deals with one speech, in a way, only one day mm-hmm. in the month of May 1940, but I've written at least five books that deal with England in May 1940 in detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Um, let me ask you this question. Why uh, did you decide to um, settle in the United States rather than in Great Britain, if your mother was an Anglophile and you had this yes. connection? Uh, this, this was uh, almost a mere accident um, after... The Russians came to Hungary, and after there was Allied military mission, by accident, by coincidence, it's really a coincidence, and to some extent the geography of the city, Budapest, where we lived, I had far more contact with Americans than I had with British. Mm -hmm. And so the Americans helped me. The Americans promised me that once I get out of Hungary, and I had to leave illegally, I didn't have a passport, um, I will get a visa for the United States. Uh-huh. That was it. Uh-huh. I see. That's very interesting. I um, used to work with and uh, just wrote an actual a long review and um, a kind of retrospective of Richard Pipes' life. Do you know Richard Pipes? 
Yes, I yes, yes, yeah. and, and uh, he has a story that's, uh, that's somewhat reminiscent of yours, and he landed in the United States also somewhat by accident, and um, both of you have been a, a, great, a great credit to us, I should say that, by way of compliment. Now, almost all of your work has dealt, as uh, you say, with the era surrounding World War II. Uh, why is that? Well, not real well, then. Not really, you know. Yes, I am, uh, perhaps known as a World War II historian, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, well, uh, partly, of course, you know, I lived in Hungary in the First World and the Second World War, and uh, uh, these were the formative years of my life. Mm -hmm. And um, very soon after the war, I began to sense and feel, and also uh, documents were available. That's a minor uh, thing of practice and method. After the Second World War, far more documents and archives were available than usual. But I, I thought and perhaps even felt that there's a... That, that, uh, there's a lot of untruth and half-truth current about the Second World War, and uh, in a way, I, I, I think that probably the underlying motive or purpose was that I wanted to correct them. Mm -hmm. And you see, this, this corresponds very much with my main interest, which is not the Second World War, but which is the, which is the writing of history, mm -hmm. I might even say the epistemology, to use a big word of history. What, what and how, what do we know about the past? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, how should we more or less properly attempt to reconstruct the past? Um, you see, the, 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 the entire, the whole truth is not given to human beings. But what's given to us, the pursuit of the truth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and in my regard, the main task of the historian is to, to correct and revise and refashion half-truths and non-truths. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about half-truth and non-truth as it concerns World War II, particularly. This is something that I uh, study as well. Uh, what were some of the half-truths and mistruths that you were trying to correct when you began your career writing about um, the Second World War? Well, Marshall, an entire long list of them. <laughs> but, uh, but one of the most important is a very, a very odd thing you asked me about England. You see, it's interesting that toward the end of my career, in the last 15 and 20 years, oddly enough, my reputation is perhaps even more serious in England than anywhere else in the United States, uh, including the United States, because I've written three or four or five books about Churchill. I'm not a Churchill expert, but about this particular period. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the most important, or perhaps an underlying thing, again, in retrospect, you know, I don't think that this was... Uh, a very conscious and direct purpose when I wrote these books is that uh, don't underestimate either Churchill or Hitler that um, in the summer of 1940 Hitler came very close to winning the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with you completely. And I, I was taught in the tradition, I believe, that probably informed by your own writing. And I uh, tell my students that really he had won the war by around May 1940. Certainly at the beginning of June in 1941, things looked beyond bad. Um, and so I, I guess I would yes, agree with you. Yes, yes. And, you know, another thing which goes back to the Cold War and the American obsession with communism, you see, it's not so odd that I should say that who have, have been a very early and very consistent anti-communist. But uh, uh, you see, I mean, here was Germany and Hitler. Here were 80 million people. And uh, they got themselves involved in a world war where against them stood, against them there was the there was the British Empire with hundreds of millions of people. And there was Russia at that time, 150 million people. And the United States, 150 million people. Another 150 million people with all their enormous technical and material superiority. And it took them six years to defeat Germany. Mm -hmm, no. And neither one of them could have done it alone. Yeah, I, I... And the odd thing is that Two of them together couldn't have done it. So, do you believe you that... needed all three. Yes, I see what you're saying. I, I quite agree with you. Do you believe that... Um, part, well, let's put it this way. Was part of the... Um, was part of the misinformation, I guess you might say, that you were trying to overturn or correct the notion that somehow the winning of the war was inevitable? A little bit. I mean, as you know, nothing is inevitable yeah. in history, but uh, but that we have to look at this uh, man Hitler differently. I mean, uh, we, we certainly uh, do not want to rehabilitate him, although there are people who are in, in rather subtle ways trying to rehabilitate him. That uh, that uh, he was not a madman in many ways. He was a he was a genius. Yeah. I mean, a, you know, a, a bad genius. Yes. Genius, not not without. I think he was the most extraordinary figure in the history of an entire century. Uh huh. No, I think that's probably right. I would. Uh, I I might make a case for Lenin, but I would probably concede to you in all your wisdom. Um, let's turn directly to the book then. Um, and uh, here's a question that I've, I'm not a Churchill expert, and you are, so I, I will just take this opportunity to um, feed my own curiosity. Why uh, Churchill was wrong about a lot of things, and he was definitely right about one, and that was Hitler and Germany. How, did he, how was he able to understand Hitler so early? Well, this is, you know, this is kind of inside. There is, there, in, in, this is almost mysterious, just like, you know, human insight, some, some stabs of insight, illumination you have is mysterious. There's a great English historian who does not deal with the Second World War, but I consider him the greatest historian alive. His name is Owen Chadwick. He really deals with religious history. Mm -hmm. And he once said that every, every... Every event in history has a touch of, every, every, every event has an element of mystery in mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely agree with it. Mm -hmm. Just as I say, I am often described as uh, uh, wrongly 
as uh, extreme conservative and aristocratic and elitist. I'm the one who will who, who emphasizes that every human being since Adam and Eve was and is a historical person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that uh, Shakespeare said that there's history in everyone's lives. Mm-hmm. 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 And, uh, and to, to come back to your question, it is amazing that the, the Churchill had an instinct about Hitler. He, uh, he understood much of him. And this, in- this is very interesting because uh, usually Englishmen uh, are not very much interested in Europeans. They don't know, uh, they don't understand very much. They're not particularly interested about their psyche and so forth but when it comes to the duel of these two people uh, this was not decisive but it was very important that churchill understood hitler better than hitler understood him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no i think that's exactly right uh, let me uh, propose a hypothesis um as weak as it might be uh while reading your book it struck me that um, churchill was a real child of empire he enjoyed the empire he liked thinking about it he liked traveling around it he liked fighting in it and writing about it and I, uh, is it perhaps the case that when he looked at Hitler, he saw a kindred soul? Because Hitler, uh, at least in hindsight, we know he wanted to build an empire. Yes, uh, this is a complicated thing because uh, for a long time, until, until just before the war, Hitler had great admiration for the British, but uh, he thought, not not without reason, that the that it that. Uh, his plan that Germany's destiny is let the British Empire be, but let the but at the same time the British must be uninvolved in Europe, mm-hmm. which incidentally coincided by and large with the thinking of many people of the British Conservative Party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, Churchill saw the. See, in a way, Churchill was a great European, which is something, into something the present Tories in England ought to, were very anti-European, ought to think about. Yeah, that's you see, you, you see, you see, Churchill consistently, uh, let's put it this way, saw it this way, by the end of the 1930s, that he and Britain had two alternatives. Either all Europe is going to be dominated by Germany, or the eastern portion of Europe is going to be dominated by Russia, and half of Europe is better than none. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And he was, yes, he was right about that, absolutely. So let me ask you this. How, um, how did you come to write this book particularly? What is the story of this book? This is a very, this is a very small story. I have written about May 1940 and so forth. And an editor, not even my regular publisher, basic books I knew, Lara Heimer, the editorial mm-hmm. director, um, she came to me that she was that they were going to publish a series of books about great texts and great speeches. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to ask me whether I would write a small book about Churchill's speeches in 1940, and I said no. <laughs> but, uh, no, but I will write. I will write about one speech. Yes. The one that was not recorded and that was not well received. Uh-huh. This is the speech of which 
one phrase, this phrase, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat, uh, became immortal, but, but oddly enough, through a kind of accumulation, except for the uh, House of Commons, nobody heard it. Yes, that's right. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, I didn't it was realize. not broadcast. I mean, uh, the text was only partially reproduced in newspapers. As I emphasize in the book, it was not very well received by the conservatives. And it took some month until somehow the text, I mean, this phrase began to reverberate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I see. I see. And it's a good lesson in that way because we, we tend to look back on these things and think that they were instantly popular and famous and cited and so on and so forth. And as you well point out in the book, that just wasn't the case with blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Um, I have to make a, an admission, though, or at least uh, how to best put this, uh, express my own very expansive ignorance. I... I and, and um, this is this is in the form this will hopefully be in the form of a question. I um, I when I thought about this phrase when he said, "I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat," the way I had always interpreted it, not knowing, was that he was saying that he himself had nothing to offer to the British people but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But that isn't the correct reading at all, is it? No, it's not incorrect. <laughs> yeah. It's not incorrect, you know. Um, you know, he, well, one of the reasons why this reverberates and became famous is that uh, this is very much of an unpolitical speech. Someone who becomes prime minister, uh, national leader, he always offers something that at least uh, is good and promising. He yes, didn't. Right. No, he didn't. And, uh, and, and, and I think this was not really very realistic, but very brave things to do. And um, after the speech, I understand he said to some of his family or some of his friends, uh, um, and this is this is great insight. He said, uh, uh, "My people, the British people, uh, are good in uh, taking up or accepting bad news." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, yes. I think I think that's probably right, and he yeah. he understood that. But I I think one of the things that your book tries to point out quite correctly is that he was really trying to bring British consciousness. That is both among the political elite and also among the masses themselves, if yeah. I may so speak, into alignment with reality. That in fact, in May 1940, things were going extraordinarily badly. Very much. And he knew this better than others. Yes, that's right. You see, you see there's in the beginning of the book I mentioned that, and you see, Churchill himself obscured this uh -huh. or ignored this in his own. Uh, very masterly history of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. I think for kind of educational reasons, he gave the impression that really that he did nothing that was terribly extraordinary. He simply represented what the British people felt and saw at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is not so. Mm -hmm. You see, you see, uh, um, he makes absolutely no reference. To, not, not only to um, how the situation was when he gave that speech, he hardly mentions it. And when two weeks later came the great uh, crisis, the five days in London, when secrecy almost seemed that uh, his uh, Secretary of State, uh, a Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax, Halifax, quite reasonably suggested that maybe something should be done, how can Britain get out of this war? Somehow, 
and, um, and he, Churchill, fought him uh, within the very secret session of cabinet. Eventually, Churchill had his way. Um, he never mentions this. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, in his in his uh, uh, beautiful second volume of the uh, history of Second World War, the finest hours, he gives the impression. You know, he actually writes that. Uh, the British people were completely united. There was no problem there. Mm -hmm. And this is not true. There was a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you think that, uh, I guess I'm asking for your judgment here, the, the he and his cabinet members, that is Halifax and, and yeah. Chamberlain and so on, were seriously considering the possibility of defeat in May 1940? That it was on yes, the horizon. Well, well, he was considering the possibility of defeat too, but he said uh, that at this situation, not because of any blind bravery, uh, our only choice is to keep fighting on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when Halifax approaches him with the question of whether they should open up a line of communication with the Germans, yes. Churchill yes. says... Uh, no, because no matter what happens, the, this very attempt means, and I'm using his uh, phrase, uh, at that moment we have stepped on a slippery slope. Slippery slope, that's exactly right. Yes. So yes. He, f he felt that if this were to leak, then, yeah, yeah. then it would damage morale among the people. Very much so, and, and he was absolutely right about this. Uh -huh. And it's interesting that even free press. It's interesting that none of this was known. None of this, none of this leaked out. That's very funny. I don't know if you. I don't know if you followed. This is just a kind of ridiculous historical analogy. But it turns out that, that you know there have been these recent bank failures in the United States. Well, it, yes. it, it turns out that this is because Charles Schumer, uh, 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 representative from New York, actually started to talk about bank failures about ten days ago. And this caused people to to run the banks. So uh, he should he should have been reading his Churchill. <laughs> Best to shut up. Yes, no, no, no. It was amazing, you know, because there were the press lords in England. You see, in 1940, except for the BBC the radio, the newspapers were terribly important. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know, there was no television, there were no political discussions on radio and so forth. Yeah. And it is amazing that uh, nothing of this leaked out. It is, it is truly, that would never, I, I hate, I, yes. though, though it's hard to say what would happen, I think such a thing yes. would be impossible today. Absol absolutely yes. impossible. Um, probably to our, all of our um, all of our disaster. Uh, let, me, let me ask you this though, at what point did Churchill decide that the war was winnable? Uh, well, let's put it this way. This is my phrase, and, um, you know, I'm really answering your question backward. Uh, you know, I have said lately several times that uh, it was Roosevelt and Stalin, America and Russia, that won the Second World War, mm -hmm. but it was Churchill who didn't lose it. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, it, uh, he thought that the British, especially the United States, would give them some help and so forth. Uh, there's a chance of Britain not losing it. Mm -hmm. But he also knew that Britain alone, or even Britain and the United States together, probably could not defeat Germany. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see, so he didn't lose it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, 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 the definite point 
came in December 1941, the night of Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. when he, knew, he and Roosevelt knew that the Japanese are going to attack somewhere, but they didn't know it was in Pearl Harbor. When the news comes, you know, he, he was very glum during that day. He, he was one of these black moods, and uh, uh, he, he, he was at dinner, and the butler came in and said, heard on the mm -hmm. radio that a Japanese attacked the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, he immediately uh, decided to ring up Roosevelt on the telephone, but for a while he waited. And he said, well, now uh, we have survived. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to win the war. Mm -hmm. I only have a couple of more questions for you. I'm finding this tremendously fascinating. I had the opportunity to interview an Australian historian a few weeks ago, and one of the things that he pointed out to me that I did not know was that uh, the prime ministers of Australia, of which there were several during the Second World War, were in the habit of sending uh, telegrams to Churchill explaining that they needed help very badly because they thought Australia would completely cease to exist if, um, if the Japanese invaded. Now, uh, did Churchill think at all about what England would be like under a Nazi occupation? What would happen to England? No, no. What he, in May 1940, thought that uh, um, he actually wrote this to Roosevelt, that uh, uh, he's not going to surrender, but a situation might come about where there is a British government that will have to deal with the Germans. He said, I will not do it, but I may have to do it. And of course, in that case, he would have left England. And then, that's a very important uh, a difference he had with Roosevelt. You see, Roosevelt thought, Roosevelt knew that the situation was very dire, but Roosevelt, who was very Navy-oriented, you know, I mean, he was mm -hmm. Assistant Secretary of Navy mm -hmm. that 20 years before the Second World War, he thought, well, if uh, worse comes to worst, the British fleet, which was still, after the American, the second largest navy in the world, is going to come over to Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. And Churchill said, no, I cannot promise this. Mm -hmm. because I will never surrender. But if the Germans land in England, if the Germans defeat us, a future British government, the only card I will have in their hand is the Navy, which was at that time three times larger than Hitler's Navy. Mm -hmm. And so that's the only thing that uh, a, a, a British government might have you know, to use to get somewhat better conditions from a conquering Germany. Mm -hmm. So then you would say, and because this, uh, this point has been expressed in historiography recently, that Churchill never considered any sort of negotiated settlement at all. No. He just, it no. never entered his mind. He would flee. No. Or, yeah, right, exactly. Well, it entered his mind, but he said, this is, uh, this is going to dismiss. I mean, we cannot get any reasonable conditions from Hitler. Yeah, and he was, uh, I yeah. think in yes. hindsight we can say he was right about yes. that. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, let me ask you this question, I, I think because I almost must. Um, in, in reviews of your book, uh, which I can't say that I've read, but I did look at uh, some of them to see where they had appeared, it's often reviewed with a couple of other books, and I, I found the the collection of books it's interviewed with a little bit odd. Um, one is a book by Nicholson Baker called Human Spoke that you might be familiar with, and another is a oh, book. Yes, I, I, I was asked to read that book. Is a, is 
complete nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's not, not because it's theme. It's unhistorical. It's full of the gravest historical mistakes. Uh-huh. It's full, you know, it's not... It's, it's because Nicholson Baker shouldn't have written a book. Well, he doesn't know anything about a subject. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that, you know, um, as you know, that will very rarely stop an American from writing a book. <laughs> yeah, well, my opinion, Hitler, you, you see this very well. Uh, there's two books I was asked to review, um, and did it reluctantly in the last three months, which are very critical of Churchill. Uh-huh. One is Nicholson Baker, the other is Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan, that was the other one I was going now, to ask Now, Pat Buchanan is, Pat Buchanan's faults, if they are faults, is his general view of history. But he knows enough, you know, but, you, you know, so, so perhaps his book is more dangerous and more insidious. Uh-huh. But Nicholson Baker, he's a faker. Uh-huh, yes. Uh, no, I, well, yeah. well, 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 uh, uh, let me let me give you a, 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 a the, the most damning example of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the title of Baker's book is Human Smoke. Yes, that's right. Yes, all right. And then, as his book finishes, he explains why this is the title. Mm-hmm. He says General Halder, who was until 1942 Hitler's chief of staff, was in the camp, concentration extermination camp of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And there was some smoke coming into his cell or whatever it was. And these were, of course, the gas ovens, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, Halder said, this is human smoke. Mm-hmm. Well, now listen to this. Halder was never in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And he was never condemned. Mm-hmm. You know, so here is his title of his book, mm-hmm. which is a total fabrication or misinformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I. You see, Halder never said this, and Halder never was in Auschwitz. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I know just what you mean, and I, I, I I'm currently uh, finishing a, a large project on the history of of communications in the media, and, and one of the things that I've come to learn is that the best way for people to get attention in the United States is to say completely outrageous things. Um, and I, I, I believe that is this is what we have here. It's, it's, yeah, very, it's a very interesting facet of the media and especially American culture that really the way to get attention is to say things that are just beyond belief. Well, well you know, I found, I found uh, the first mention of Nicholson Baker is that McGrath, I know him, is, you know, used to be the editor of the Times Book Review. I mean, the first page of the Times, he went to interview Nicholson Baker, yeah. who was publishing this important book. Yeah, see, that's just yeah. what I'm talking about. On the about. other <laughs> hand, now this is not, believe me, this is not, on the other hand, my book and other books got absolutely no mention yeah. to you. I know. I know. Well, as I, as I say, it's uh, it's really um, it's a little bit like a game of show and tell, and uh, the person that brings the dead thing wins, and uh, it's really quite a remarkable thing. I, I've I've noticed. You know, this all this all this always existed, you know, except that nowadays it's perhaps worse than it used to be, and I'll tell you why. This, this is a very dangerous thing that people don't read, well, because there has been, you see, human nature doesn't change, mm-hmm. but human behavior changes, mm-hmm. and there is an absolutely disastrous shrinking of the attention span. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, I think... And this involves scholars, book reviewers, editors, publishers. They are there. You know, we know this world is now full of people who are incapable of listening. Yes, no, uh, uh, I'm related to some of them. (laughs) Yes, yes, yeah, very often to their own peril. Yes, 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 I I know just exactly. There are things that they ought to know, not because of your, not only because of your general, their general culture, you know, but uh, but they don't listen. Yeah, no, I I quite I quite agree with you. Well, I promise not to take up too much of your time, but let me ask you our our traditional last question: What are you? Working on now? Uh, well, I'm working on it, but I have to get a uh, publishing contract. Um, I don't really know that um, I wrote this is uh, was published uh, more than a year ago. A short biography of George Cannon, mm-hmm. you know, who honored me with friendship, came very close. Um, we exchanged about 400 letters in 50 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of letters. It is a lot of letters. And, uh, well, I mean, both of us. I'd like to publish uh, his correspondence with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think that, that, yeah, that sounds terrific. Yeah. Actually, it's funny because I was at the Institute for Advanced Study for a year, and my office was right down the way from George Kennan's. Um, and I really? met, I, met yeah. him, I, I was honored to meet him once as well. Uh, he was very old yeah. at the time and not in good health, but I, I talked to him for a few minutes. You, you know, he went to his office regularly oh, until yes. the 99th year of his life. Yes, no, he absolutely did. He was there with his walking yes. stick, and uh, he had kind yes. of a, he'd had kind of an earpiece that he would use. And he, no, it was remarkable. He was a remarkably hardworking. Yeah, yes, boy. yes. He he began to rely on a stick. Not until he was 90 years old. That's absolutely remarkable. It's truly remarkable. Well, I hope that when that's published, you will honor us by coming back on the show and talking to us about that book. Yes, well, that book is mostly, you know, I will reproduce, um, if I get a good publisher, all his letters to me. They're very interesting. They run through the history of the Cold War. But uh, I will only reproduce, I have to abridge some of my letters written to him, mm-hmm. well, but not his letters. Well, I, I wish you luck with that project. Um, John, yes. John, John Lucas, thank you very much for being on the show uh, with us today. I've really appreciated your time. And, I, and, 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 and thanks, thanks for your question. It's my pleasure. Take care. And now. your interest. All right. Bye-bye. B- bye-bye now. You've been listening to an interview with John Lucas about his book, Blood, Toil, Tears, and Sweat, The Dire Warning. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope to talk to you next week.